0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with my co-host and the person who is going to carry my sorry butt through this episode, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos, what's going on?
1: Sean, how are you doing, my friend? Uh, Happy Valentine's Day at the moment of this
0: recording. Mm. It is true. I should probably think about doing something for my wife.
1: (laughs) I mean, you've got an entire several hours. So. I,
0: yes, I do. I do. That's uh, yeah. that's a that's a thing. That's a thing mm-hmm. that I probably should have thought about earlier. Uh, Just but bear you know, your
1: heart. That's all you need it, to do.
0: Exactly.
1: Exactly. <laughs> uh, so, without using surgical tools.
0: Oh well, that's right out. Then I'll have to go to Plan B. <laughs> We uh, we got two really interesting listener questions, one recently and one a little bit in the past. And uh, they were both so uh, so exciting that we want to talk about them that we're going to make these our main topics for today. So we're just going to give you those questions. Then we'll jump into news and then we'll get to those questions. Uh, the first comes from Jean Lorbert, who asks, is Watsi supporting the length of adventure campaign that most groups play? If not, does that lead to suboptimal engagement? Uh, and is there a reason to improve? Uh, how does this mismatch impact DMs and designers? What does a one session, a five session, or a 10 session version of each hardback even look like? So that's a, that's a bunch of really great questions. Uh, earlier in, in our lives, we got a question from Planagia who said, as you complete FizzBands, I'd love it. If you went back through some of your favorite adventures from other editions, talk about their design, what made them great and how you would up them, update them for fifth edition. And really these two questions sort of go together, uh, right? Because we want, we, if we're going to talk about what wizards is doing now to support adventures, campaigns, uh, we can talk about what they used to do, what TSR and what Wizards used to do. Uh, look at those old adventures. Look at some newer adventures, and talk about this kind of as a big mishmash topic. So that's what yeah. we plan on doing. Um, hopefully, intelligently it may take us a couple of episodes. Whoa. Yes, Whoa, I know. I'm man. asking. I'm asking a lot there. Uh, maybe over a couple of episodes, we'll we'll look at this or you In know this if... economy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But. Speaking of this economy, our first news item is Wizards of the Coast was recently announced as being a $1 billion plus revenue publisher, wow. which is something that we, A, have never seen before, B, never thought we would see. Uh, so 2021 revenue was over $1.3 billion, the first wow. time it has passed the $1 billion mark. So not only did it... You know, it didn't just creep over the $1 billion mark. A billion and a third. A billion and a third, right? And so tabletop game sales alone were almost a, a, a billion, $950 million. So And that doesn't include digital games. Now, going above and beyond that, operating profit. So revenue is one thing, right? Profit is revenue minus expenses. <laughs> the operating profit was five hundred and forty seven million dollars if you look at hasbro as a whole that profit was 72 percent of hasbro's profit wow uh yeah i mean that's that's a lot of profit for a business uh based on that revenue right that's and and that's
1: the key right that's that's the reason that uh hasbro is looking at wizards right there and and we've talked about this before but when you have that kind of profit all of the managers go well let's do more of that because if we can scale that that's that's
0: glorious right right and i mean obviously every business is different every type of business is different but just thinking about that in terms of sort of business as a whole these large billion dollar businesses you know Uh, When you say revenue of over a billion dollars, that's great. Uh, But not many businesses or types of businesses will have a profit of that much, right? Their profit may be non-existent. Their profit may be very slim. It's nothing like the, you know, 45% or whatever that that represents. Uh, So do you want to talk about some of the growth that they announced?
1: Sure. Uh, the revenues for Wizards grew by 44%, which if you've been hearing us on the show, you've heard us talk about growth for a while now, right? <laughs> it's been a long time of us saying it's, uh, this quarter profits grew or revenues grew. And for revenues to grow 44% on top of everything that's happened before is really remarkable. And 44% is one of the biggest numbers we've talked about. Um, digital games were slower, but still 36%, which is amazing. Now, that's revenue, but still, that's really strong growth. Yeah. Um, when you look at just the segment of games, Hasbro as a whole had its games grow 19%, and mm-hmm. game sales were a total of 2.1 billion. Um, they named a number of brands that were strong. One of them was HeroQuest, which I was happy to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and overall, Hasbro itself earned $6.4 billion. So that's the size of the whole company. But again, that profit part is really critical to look, to look at. And you can kind of compare these numbers, right? Like right. $1.3 billion, which was Wizards revenue, out of the $6.4 billion, But that $547 million in revenue from tabletop game sales was 72% of profit. So there's a lot of things that are really, really slim margins. Right that are being sold in stores by Hasbro and the wizard stuff is on another level of of profit creation. Right. And that's really impressive.
0: Yep. And uh, wizards of the coast also said that they will have one digital release each year, starting in 2023. Uh, And so that uh, sort of dovetails with the announcement last time of a new president and vice president uh, at wizards of the coast coming from the digital space. Yeah. Uh, we got all that information from comicbook.com and icb2.com um, and those links to those articles are in our show notes uh, we've talked for a bit about nfts and blockchain and it's kind of a growing topic in the role-playing game world as we see more and more companies either coming out and saying hey we're going to explore nfts and blockchain or we are not going to touch those with a 10 foot pole because they're ridiculous. And yeah. And, uh, so it shouldn't come as a shock to you that, you know, Teos and I are on the NFTs and blockchain are a big scam, a big joke and pretty horrifying in terms of their impact on, um, you know, on the environment, on, on the world. (laughs) So, uh, you want to lead us in and some of the news that's come out in this uh, realm the last week?
1: Yeah, so we had some good news uh, this last week, and it's clear that this has become a a big topic. So Ravensburger, which is uh, an enormous board game company based in Germany, they invested four point five million in the crowdfunding platform GameFound, um, which will help it compete with Kickstarter. And Kickstarter has announced these very vague, nebulous blockchain NFT plans and refuses to answer any questions. So it's interesting to see other industry members saying, well, let's support a different platform. And Ravensburger are taking that step with a $4.5 million investment. And that's exactly what a lot of these alternates need is these alternate platforms need some way to, to uh, add all these features. right? They need the capital with which to, to get up to speed. Um, separately, I saw an article that said that GameFound, even though it was only started last year, um, is at a 10th of Kickstarter's volume, which Mm -hmm. is actually way closer than I thought it would be. um, and shows a lot of promise, especially if they can get this kind of investment coming in. Mm -hmm. Um, then Indie Press Revolution, which makes many small press RPGs and is often a storefront for other companies. They announced that it will never, ever get involved in NFTs um similarly ko-fi which is a platform that allows creators to receive tips sell things on a store and gain patreon monthly style supporters they announced a firm stance against nfts uh whereas the rival patreon has sometimes suggested support and then recently on like their discord has backed off of that but in, in nebulous and confusing language that seems like they're hedging their bets which is unfortunate um and then i liked what Io <laughs> tweeted
0: yeah uh, share that. and nfts this is an exact quote from from their tweet nfts are a scam if you think they're legitimately useful for anything other than the exploitation of creators financial scams and the destruction of the planet then we ask you to please reevaluate your choices <laughs> Uh Drive through RPG jo- oh yeah, go yeah No, go. go uh Drive Through RPG joined in saying that in regard to NFTs, we see no use for this technology in our business ever. <laughs> yeah, so, so that's great.
1: Yeah, yep. Re- really nice to see that. Um but on the other side of the coin, Chaosium, which is the the company behind Call of Cthulhu, and they're owned by a larger entity. Um they had released nearly two thousand NFTs and they announced plans to sell more they uh partner with this vive.me platform which was called environmentally friendly uh because it offsets its carbon usage and it talks about using a more um uh like not bitcoin so therefore it's it's more efficient but when people started looking into it there are some really weird messages around what vive is doing it seems like they are actually on the ethereum blockchain and it looks like a lot of these things they're claiming are maybe not exactly what they're claiming, mm-hmm. um, which is part of the problem with this. And even under a best case scenario, that carbon offsetting is, is, uh, is a hope and a prayer versus the guaranteed energy usage that comes from these things. Yep. And I like yeah. this uh, Reddit comment that came up. What is the difference between NFTs and Cthulhu? One is an aberrant monstrosity that consumes and devours power and ablates the senses with the pitiless <laughs> futility of it all. And the other
0: is Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, so th- that's a pretty strong uh, statement there. Uh, yeah. There's also a company called Gripner that promised to develop five E NFTs, um, and they have a collaborator in the former Paizo and Wizards of the Coast designer and organized play uh, had Stephen Radley McFarland, and uh, you know so they're exploring NFTs as a way to. Enhance the role-playing game experience, I guess um, Yeah, And I think really what all of this comes down to Is that blockchain itself uh, As a technology Is pretty horrible in so many different ways And it's tied inextricably in a lot of ways To Bitcoin and cryptocurrency uh, Which is really just a scam uh, It's a pyramid scheme and so trying to what what the people that back this and are going to make money off of this are trying to do are find ways to use the technology when you don't need to right uh, is really what it comes down to so you know they're saying but think of all the cool applications for this and so therefore if you you come out against it then you're ostensibly coming out against the thing that is trying to be done Right. So I'm like, I'm cool with playing games in a different way, right? I'm cool Mm -hmm. with trying to think of new technologies to bring the game to more people or to, to make it more interesting, make it more fun. It's just, this is the wrong vehicle with which to do it because it's a scam. Uh, So to, right. To, to the people that, you know, are backing it, you know, just think about what you're doing in, in the long term. right? Are you doing it simply because, it's a cool new technology. Well, think about the what's behind it, really. Yeah. And you know, are you supporting it because you think you can make a dime off of it uh, because you you might not be making the dime you think you're making, uh, and just think it through, do some research. you know don't just pick a side and then say, yay, or no, but but you know, investigate what blockchain really means. Investigate mm. what this cryptocurrency is really all about which is usually money laundering and illegal activities uh you know so so think it through mm-hmm. i don't have much yeah, to add. And it,
1: our next news item is uh another sort of dose of reality
0: <laughs> yeah yeah you want you want to go go through this one
1: sure so you know I think the part we're focusing on is mostly that Alan Tucker, who shared some great, great insights on production costs and was joined by others as well. But this all came from an earlier report that this company, Gemhammer Gemhammer Gaming, was asking for writers at a rate of one one cent a word. Right. A rate of one cent a word. And this uh, had been going on for a while, but then all of a sudden got notice. It got viral. Reactions became viral on Twitter, and there were a lot of very angry uh, messages coming into Gem Hammer, uh, which led to the owner showing up on, tw- on their Twitch stream and sort of apologizing and, and you know crying and, and trying to explain through everything that happened over the last few days, and and providing perspective on sort of where they had come from, which is that they apparently didn't really sort of understand any of this perspective of what one cent a word means right. because they would really been doing their work almost entirely for free and they've never made any money to begin with right uh, and while they had a kickstarter that might on the surface level look positive they really have never been uh, never had any real income from this mm-hmm. um and this brought a lot of creators to sort of think about this this larger question right of, of how profitable are these various entities and, and how should we react, uh, around this, this type of topic of what, uh, when companies offer a very low pay rate, what's that mean? What's going on?
0: Mm-hmm. So then Alan Tucker gave his description of what looked like to most people, a successful Kickstarter that he ran, uh, you know, the, the Kickstarter raised, uh, almost 11,000, well, $10,700. And, With additional sales on various platforms, it's up to, you know, 11,000 in revenue, which sounds like a pretty good project. And then he goes through the costs that he incurred (laughs) to create the product are of, you know, five thousand and a half dollars, uh, you know, fifty five hundred writers fees, another fifty five hundred editing, shipping and so on. The total expenses for this project that made eleven thousand dollars was over Mm $15,000. So while it looks like, oh, good, you know, a Kickstarter that five figures that he lost almost $5,000 on it. And that doesn't include any of his own time and costs and the words that he wrote on his own. Yeah. So while it's true that one cent a word is very low, uh, it's also true that small companies just can't afford more. And so... It, it's this balancing act of trying to not loot not not just not make a profit, but not lose everything uh, to create these projects and products that we love uh, and you know, again, I'll just be aware of going in what you're doing uh, if you try to create these projects or if you are writing or doing art or doing some other work on these projects.
1: I think it's really healthy for people to talk about this because even though I've done a lot of work on costs and things like that, there are a lot of angles i had never considered. Like Alan Tucker's product is a monster book. And one of the things I realized is monster book is one of the most expensive things you can make. True. Because everybody wants one piece of art per monster. Mm-hmm. And even if you skip some monsters, can you skip every other you know what can you get away- get away with you you can't get away with skipping too many, mm-hmm. whereas an adventure you know you could have maybe one art per scene per per large section right of mm-hmm. you know maybe like an hour of play or more that you don't you know and it can be spot art little small pieces can work because they're evocative, but people want to know what does this monster look like, and if you've got some particular you know creature in mind you you can't you know you can't write up a red dragon and put a blue dragon's art right Mm -hmm. it it tends to be specific and so it's one of the most expensive things you can do and when i started realizing oh wow (laughs) that is that is really difficult to fund Mm -hmm. um but it's true of any kind of project any project is is difficult to fund at these levels uh, because the volume of sales is low and because the price that that gamers expect is low Mm -hmm. but i think at the same time it can be true that companies can't afford paying high rates, uh, small companies, mm-hmm. but also true that one cent a word is really too low.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that's because if you look at one cent a word, it, it's it's really a trap. Um, you know, if you write 3000 words and you get paid 30 bucks for that, mm-hmm. I mean, you might as well have just made a 3000 word product on the guild. And even if it doesn't quite reach copper, you'll make, you'll be better off. Right. Plus you'll establish your brand. You'll have ongoing revenue over time. You know, like mm-hmm. you would really be better off doing something for yourself, even something very low investment, very low, you know, it's, it's almost hard not to mm-hmm. make a better return than yeah. at one cent a word doing things for yourself. And and so I think that's that's where small companies it it is on it is important for small companies to think through this and think through what rate they're offering and 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 whether it's okay and and maybe it's just you know as much as you want to accelerate your project and get it done faster maybe you shouldn't right maybe maybe your product maybe you're not releasing as many products as you think because hiring someone once sent a word isn't a great idea.
0: Okay. Yep. Uh, not much more to add there. Just more. <laughs> more business-related things to keep in mind. Uh, on the DMs Guild, as of today, there is a new product that we thought people might be interested in. It is called "They, Land of the Red Wizards. It is going up on the DMs Guild. The authors are a gentleman you may have heard of called Ed Greenwood, uh, you know, who created the Forgotten Realms, uh, mm-hmm. Alex Kammer, and Alan Patrick via Game Hole Publishing. Uh, So the creator of the Forgotten Realms himself is uh, putting his name on this product, which is 109 pages of Thay and goodness. The chapter breakdown is chapter one, the people of Thay. Chapter two, ruling Thay. So it goes over sort of the social and uh, political hierarchy of Thay. Chapter three, points of interest, uh, places where you might want to set your adventures. Uh, Chapter four, the heroes of Thay. This includes a new paladin subclass, the Weavebound Paladin, as well as a new uh, magic system called Circle Magic, and then some Thayan backgrounds and equipment. Uh, chapter five are, are creatures of the plateau, so some monsters for Thay. And then the last chapter is an adventure called Intrigue and Eltabar. It is an adventure from, from, for character levels one through four. You start at level one and then it takes you through level two and three, so you end at level four. And it takes place in El Tabar, which is the capital city of Fay. So it involves some political intrigue and it isn't many there aren't many more political, uh dangerous places than the capital <laughs> of Fay. Yeah. Whew. yeah. Um, so the book details uh, information about each of the Tharches the Tharches are the political divisions of Thay and then each uh, Tharch has a leader called the Tharchian so it gives you the updated uh, roster of Tharchians you know there's a Volo style tour of the metropolitan areas and a new map of Thay by one Michael Schley
1: Man, Like when you can bring in Mike Schley to do art and that art is awesome. It's it's a level of detail of like the fan plateau and all the surrounding Mm -hmm. areas that is just gorgeous. I don't think there's any, any map like it. The whole PDF is, is just beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, and great content. I mean, things like reading about the people of Thay, it, 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 it adds, uh, a dimension to it that, that goes beyond what has been in like the red wizards box set or other mm-hmm. previous works. Um, and, and the art as well is just I mean fantastic. Really cool. Yeah.
0: yeah. So if you're going to have a, a campaign or some adventures that take place in Thay, you could definitely do much worse than, uh, checking out this product.
1: Yeah. And, and really nice. The price point is really amazing for such a, a quality work. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just a ton of a ton of material in here, uh, and what is it? It's um, 109 pages.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, great, significant great stuff. Yep, uh, another release for Five E is the Book of Wondrous Magic Volume Two from MT Black. As as you can tell from the title, there was a Book of Monst- or Wondrous Magic One. Did very well. This one has 100 magic items for five d and d at at only four dollars cost. Oof. So if you are in the market for new magic items, uh, grab MT Black's latest.
1: It's really neat seeing MT um, move over to drive through and and explore that uh, area and do well with with the additional tools that drive through provides that the guild does not. Mm -hmm. um i got a sneak peek at this a few times while mt was designing this um he's got a great eye for for fun mechanics and works harder than i would imagine anybody would work on getting these items right and balancing them the level of care that craig has is, is really impressive um and some examples of fun items in this book, like there's a fog weave marble. You kind of throw it and roll it on the ground and it'll speed unerringly zipping to a spot you choose within hundred feet. And then it blows up into a 40 foot sphere of fog lasting an hour until it's dispersed. Mm-hmm. Very fun. Uh, restoration gum, you chew it and it removes a disease or a condition. <laughs> That's great. Nice. Um, and then there are really cool, like legendary items too. Like one I really liked was the trammeler. A legendary plus three mace. When you hit a creature, it has to make a saving throw or its speed becomes zero. Uh, I guess you're kind of pounding into the ground. And then once per day, you can hit the ground with the hammer, release a wave of thunderous force, Avengers style, dealing damage and pushing creatures and objects away from you. Super fun.
0: Yep. So all of that and more are available on RPG. Uh, the book of wondrous magic volume two link is in our show notes so that's a it's a good uh, sample of this week's news so now we can get into our main topic or our main topics uh, which go back to those two questions Um, basically you know what what is wizards doing in terms of adventure length in order to uh give its audience what it needs and what it wants for the types of games they're running and what sort of older adventures uh, would we think about in terms of updating the fifth edition because they're so good because they've got cool things. Uh, so let's dive right into those questions. Uh, the, the first question is why, why bother going back and looking at these old classic adventures Uh, So why, Teos? Why would we do that?
1: (laughs) Well, I I think there are a couple of reasons. One is that there are some truly excellent adventures to either experience or re-experience. It's worth going back to that well. So famous adventures like Temple of Elemental Evil, uh, Pharaoh, my personal favorite from the Desert Desolation series, and I love the whole series, a Red Hand of Doom, a favorite for many. Night's mm-hmm. Dark Terror, I think that's DM David's favorite. The Age of Worms adventures that spanned uh, mm-hmm. Dungeon Magazine sort of brought in the concept of an adventure path. Mm-hmm. Madness at Gardmore, Abbey for 4E, and you know, all of these are just classics. And even if you run them, you can you can say to yourself, I want to do that again, and hey, now I'm running 5th edition, so I need to think about how I want to update that. Yeah. Um, good.
0: Oh, I... I was just going to add that, you know, some adventures you want to play because of the plot, right? The plot mm-hmm. really speaks to you. Some adventures you might want to play because the, the, um, the, the mechanics of it, something about it, the mm-hmm. cool traps, right? The the story of, uh, uh Tomb of Horrors, mm-hmm. isn't really there. There's no real right. story to it. It's like there's a bad guy in here. You should go in. Yeah. and uh and and part of what we need to talk about when we talk about these adventures, which we'll do later, are the differences between the additions and the differences in play styles that the differences in uh in additions bring yeah. Right? Yeah. We didn't need a lot of pushing for a D and D for first edition, D, and D in terms of plot because you needed to adventure to gain experience. You got experience by killing monsters and gaining treasure. There weren't really any story awards or, you know, milestone uh, advancement. You kept track of it. Now, you could. You could always just say, okay, you gain level. But for the most part, you had to keep track of your treasure and your monsters killed in order to level. So, especially
1: because different classes leveled at different rates yes. uh, and if you multi-classed it, messed it all up. So everybody had right. to keep their own accounting to make the system work.
0: Exactly. So the, what reason do you need to go on an adventure? Because I need experience points <laughs> and treasure. Yeah. You know, so that's changed quite a bit, uh, over the years. So, you know, that's just one thing that we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. Uh so there, there are those reasons. Um, we may have, you may have been playing all along, but you just didn't get a chance to play that one adventure, and so you want to experience it, or have your players experience it if you're the DM. Mm-hmm. Um, what yeah, other reasons? Like,
1: you know, before Tomb of Annihilation came out, I ran Tomb of Horrors for a, a bunch of my local friends, mm-hmm. and you know told them up front i mean they'd all heard a fair bit i think there was only one person who didn't know what the green devil is like right um which was fun because of course they jumped into it um but uh but there were um it it was they none of them had played through the entire thing and so just to have that experience right and we're all laughing about what this Mm -hmm. adventure does to you right is great right it's great to go back and see a classic like that
0: yep And there are different kinds of adventures, different kinds of experiences, from huge dungeon crawls like Undermountain to the death traps like uh, Tomb of Horrors, where it's not, you know, make a save or die. It's just die. (laughs) You (laughs) you stick your head in that hole, you're dead. There you go. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, chases, competitions, wilderness adventures. Uh, All of those things are cool uh, and probably in their own time, unique Mm -hmm. types of adventures that you want, you want to experience the first time that this type of adventure was put out there.
1: Yeah. And there's some really amazing concepts out there, right? I mean, because there've been so many years now of the game existing and writers thinking about things, you have concepts like a dead God in an astral sea or exploring elemental nodes, uh, time Mm -hmm. travel, dying in the first encounter, and playing new characters for the actual adventure, right? These are things that have been done. And so sometimes we we may remember those or we may hear about them, but but there are reasons to seek out these old experiences and mine them for ideas or Mm -hmm. play parts of them.
0: Yeah. Uh, So what are some of those challenges with going back and uh, updating or playing or preparing these older adventures?
1: Well, the first is mechanics, right? So sometimes the, the nature of that language that's in the book, it needs updating as you go through it, right? It doesn't have, uh, our current skill check DC system or saving throws. So even just a thing like a trap, we need to think through what should it look like. Mm -hmm. And we need to convert that to say the table that's in Xanathar's. Um, Or a spellcaster may have a spell that doesn't exist in the game anymore. Uh, The monster itself may be one that back then was, you know, a really easy monster and now is much beefier or vice versa.
0: Yep. Uh, There are also times when in older editions, there wasn't a rule for something that there is now. Or that you just made things up. I remember, I think it was in Tomb of Horrors. Or it might have been... white plum mountain where you go into a room and the, the text for the dm tells you to start counting. Oh yeah. And if you get to a certain number, basically the characters die unless they interrupt you and do something. And you know, if you tried that now, you know, players sometimes are taught to let the dm finish, right? You don't want to yeah. interrupt the dm, right? So if that's your style where you know you tell the players don't interrupt me, while i'm, you know, giving box text or something, you start counting. That's a completely different thing. It's yeah. it's not modeled well in the rules or, you know, there's no initiative, there's no perception check. The perception check is you're counting. Yeah. So, <laughs> right? So you have to be wary of those sorts of things as well.
1: You know, I can think of another one based on a conversation I was having this weekend uh, with another designer, which is the disease track in fourth edition. Mm-hmm. was this sort of ping pong back and forth where you're trying to get better. The disease is trying to make you worse. Right. And and if you have that in adventure, it's a very specific mechanic meant to work a specific way. Mm-hmm. None of the underpinning for that is in the game currently. Right. And there are spells that purport to just wipe this out. And so you have to think about how am I going to add this in?
0: True. <laughs> uh, and like the style of some of these adventures, uh, some the style nowadays is for the most part you get a pretty detailed description of rooms and of plots and of connections as opposed to back in the day where you might on a two-page spread have 20 room descriptions of yeah. of like one paragraph or one one sentence each or on the other hand you could have a whole column of box text with <laughs> yeah. all of this stuff going on while you're standing there and watching as much as you know james at jacaso may say that box text is terrible it was worse back then uh, oh gosh yeah. uh, you could you could have you could be sitting there listening for a while so you know that's something that you need to keep in mind sort of difference if, if in style things- Both things
1: can be true because some of my favorite box text ever is in Temple of Elemental Evil, Mm -hmm. and yet comes is part of an enormous wall of box text that should not have existed even back then, and should certainly not exist now. Uh, but, but lines like, you know, fortune and the gods must smile upon such an undertaking. Like, right. I love that line and I use it all the time with players, right. but, uh, but it comes at the end of this enormous wall of text and yep. your players are asleep by the time you get to that great line.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Styles were different back then. Uh, so anything else about challenges with older adventures before we move on? Um,
1: yeah, I think we'll have some of these other concepts, but but I also want to keep in mind that question uh, from Jean Laubert, which is, you know, what a, how does that compare and contrast to the 5e style, mm-hmm. which are these big, meaty adventures, right, that, that are, it can take you a year or more to play. I mean, I think I ran mm-hmm. Tomb of Annihilation in two years. And so mm-hmm. so that can also be very different in that a lot of these adventures that were made back then are super small. Like they're like mm-hmm. 10 pages long sometimes. And that might right. fill four hours based on how they were intended to be run. Mm-hmm. But they are so small as compared to today's, you know, 200 mm-hmm. and whatever page tomes.
0: Yeah, I, it's... The question really does go back to what type of play did the rule set that you were using uh, facilitate and demand? And... If you sat down to play Tomb of Horrors, it could take you three hours. It could take you fifty hours, mm-hmm. right? It all depends on the DM at the time. But I think there was at least in my experience, which was limited uh, due to my young age. I'm a young man, you know, uh, back <laughs> then. And yeah, you know, I played with a few different groups with for first for first edition, but it's not like. I got to see ten thousand different tables, like I have since then. But there was this sort of—we would play six hour, six hours without even thinking about it, and it was like anything shorter than that seemed like a waste of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Because yeah, we we had the time, we were young. Uh, you know, weekends, summers, we would just sit down and we would play through the whole thing yeah. if we could. And sometimes that was uh that was a pretty beefy adventure uh squished down and sometimes it was a very short adventure expanded but there was this sort of you didn't just sit down and play for an hour uh at least in my experience i don't yeah. i it seemed to me that people even like letters to to dragon magazine it, you know there seemed to be this idea that you played for quite a while and the DM in some way turned it into a campaign, whether right. they created their own or linked different adventures together, even if the adventures weren't meant to be a campaign, <laughs> yeah, yeah. because there weren't a lot of those back then yeah. you would, you would turn it into one. So, you know, the, and the rules seem to push you in that direction. Um, you didn't do a one shot. You, 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 you wanted to play. You wanted to mm-hmm. level and build up, you know? So that was the target audience back then, whether the rules created the audience or the audience was that way to begin with. That was what they were marketing for and creating for. Nowadays, I think it's much, much more diverse and much, much different what people want. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And there's, there's such a strong storytelling aspect, too, in that now we want our characters to be the, the you know, protagonists in a novel or a movie. Uh, as part of our play. And while we cared about our characters back then, we knew they were very disposable, that Mm there, it was very risky. You knew that they could die easily. Uh, so you weren't as invested and there wasn't the chance to interact with so much of the game such that you were going to really tell a broad story about yourself. It was more in your head. And then, you know, the fun you had with your players,
0: right? The, the, the term I remember was don't talk to the experience points. Right, you go into the dungeon. You needed experience points to level. You got experience points by killing things and taking their stuff. So you know, don't talk right. to the ogre. Don't talk to the troll. We just kill it. Speed. We need the experience, which sort of cut down on the role playing. Mm-hmm. And you know, most of the content that was written took place in a dungeon. It, there wasn't yeah. a lot of that role playing. Uh, the rules in the Dungeon Master's Guide that I remember. Was more about like, yes, there was henchmen and yes, there were hirelings, but it was more what did they do for you rather than how do you interact with them? And, you know, you, you, your big role playing thing outside of the dungeon was getting enough experience points to build your keep or to, you know, create your temple if you were a cleric or rise in the guild, if you were a rogue or become a higher level druid in the druidic society, there wasn't a lot of that interpersonal uh, thing.
1: And I think that's an important thing to recognize if you're, if you're comparing to fifth edition uh, and, and and you want to think about where you are on that scale of, do you want sort of like, say something like the way rise of Tiamat creates this long, big invested experience you know do you want that out of a classic adventure because then some classic adventures will be better than others at that but like for Mm -hmm. example if you take something like keep on the borderlands which is a bunch of caves you start at the keep they tell you to go to the caves because there's bad things there and you go and and the caves you know could be connected but it's up to you if you're gonna add some sort of story connections there aren't very Mm -hmm. many connections between them and it's a bunch of caves with a bunch of stuff in it and so if you want that rise of Tiamat mm-hmm. type of experience, well, you're going to have to add it because it's not there because that wasn't what we were doing
0: back then. Yeah. The, the year that they were playtesting testing D and D next at winter fantasy. Um, I think I was asked to create a five E D and D next version of the caves of chaos and so I did, and it wasn't terribly difficult to to update, as we will talk about shortly. Uh, but I was like, "There's no, there's no story here." And mm-hmm. I, I drove to Winter Fantasy, and uh, the chatty DM, Phil Menard, mm-hmm. was in the car with me. We're like, "We need to create a story here." So we came up with this story about uh, a wedding. Right, the caves were a buzz because these two different tribes of orc or goblin or whatever we're having a wedding between you know combining these two so that's that was the story as the characters went through they started learning about this and it turned into a completely different adventure if you ran it that way because you shared
1: that with other dms as you know here's some wild ideas and i was like oh this is great and and yeah i ran it that way too and it it was a lot of fun to add a story onto it but you had to think about that you had to right plan for it and then deploy that so that it it worked. And and I think in in my version, I had, um, the way it started was a poorly written note was delivered, was delivered to the keep, which the characters received. And it was actually the goblins were hiring the characters or trying to hire them, uh, because this wedding was throwing the caves into so much chaos that the goblins were in danger of being wiped out as the way one of the marriage parties would prove their worth to the other. Right. Yeah. So yep. Come save us from these, from this wedding.
0: Right. And so, you know, you can do that, but it, as Teo said, takes a little bit of work. You have to think mm-hmm. it through and then come up with some cool interactions, some school, some cool role-playing hooks and some cool consequences for whatever choices that the characters make. So no uh, oh, yeah. no I, was no, I was, say one
1: of the things we can look at is what has been converted already.
0: Yep. to 5E. Yep. So what have we seen come out of 5E that is based on previous adventures? Well, we've got Curse of Strahd, which is not directly uh, a 5E translation of Ravenloft, but close enough. Um, yeah, fairly and the close. interior
1: is pretty similar. Right. With uh, then these links to the these additional right. places that were added. In it's Broca. more
0: expanded on, uh, okay. but it's the the story's pretty much the same. And as Teo said, the the castle is very very uh, yeah. similar. Well, we have tales from the awning portal, which brings to us pretty uh, strict uh, conversions of the Sunless Citadel, Forge of Fury. The Hidden Shrine of Tomocan, uh White Plume Mountain, Dead and Thay, Against the Giants, and Tomb of Horrors. So there's a good selection of you yeah. know, first through fourth edition adventures uh, directly translated into fifth edition. Mm-hmm. What, what, what are some other ones?
1: So Ghosts of Saltmarsh. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is an excellent UK series. Uh, and I was very glad to see this converted because even back in D and D Next, I wrote a blog post about um, the Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh. It's one of my favorite old adventures, and it was mm-hmm. a sort of unheralded classic back then. Um, and then they added the the rest of the UK series of adventures, and then Dungeon Magazine adventures that had emerged over the years for prior editions, and and made that all into a more updated book. But but it, but it varies. Some things are updated, like the town is fleshed mm-hmm. out. And there are some plots and things like that that are that are new, but then you get to some of the Dungeon Magazine content that it feels like it's barely updated at all. Right, uh, and in fact, you kind of wish it had been <laughs> modernized a bit yeah. uh, beyond what was done. Um, yeah. So it's interesting, you know. There's a variety there, and and I think Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh, the first adventure, is one of the adventures that least requires updating because it just mm-hmm. works brilliantly as yeah. written. Yeah, and almost every monster. Is a monster that's classically low level, right? So you can almost just swap in the, the fifth edition stat box for most of those, right? Um, which I found very interesting.
0: Yeah, it's. I, I was. It was. Sinister Secret of Salt Marsh was the first adventure I DM'd, hmm. and it it is. It's basically got those traditional low level spider, centipede, yeah. and like the only thing. Spoilers here, obviously. I think <laughs> the only thing is the like the illusionist at the end. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, but there there is an allusion to stat block. I don't know how much that would have to be adjusted based on level, but yeah, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's pretty interesting. And then if we actually look at the larger hardcover campaign adventures that they put out, many of them, whether part or wholly, are inspired by these older adventures. Right? Uh, against the Giants is Storm
1: is King's Thunder. Storm
0: King's Thunder. Tomb of Annihilation. Uh, Tomb of Horrors, Princes of the Apocalypse, the Temple of Elemental, evil. evil, and we could go on and on. You know, Even if they're not related directly, there is sort of a, a connection to a lot of those. Yeah. Um, so it's not like we don't have a template or a blueprint or at least a guide for how to do it because it's been done uh, by Wizards of the Coast themselves uh, for 5th edition.
1: Yeah, and this also gives you a comparison by which you can look at at uh, Jean's question where they ask, you know, is Wizards of the Coast supporting the length of adventure campaign that most groups play? And you could sort of think through, like, you know, if you take Yawning Portal and run one of those, or Ghost of Saltmarsh and run one of those, is that a better length for you mm-hmm. than running a 5e hardback where it's, you know, a much longer experience? Yeah. Um, how does that work for you to 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 do a certain number of sessions and then you can draw upon those classic adventures that fit that style mm-hmm. length that you want
0: yeah and and part of the question you know uh, one answer to that question is as wizards of the coast supporting all the different game groups is no but they don't have to because they have the adventures league and they have the DMs Guild. and there are plenty of third party party publishers Um, who Wizards is tacitly giving permission through the OGL to create their own adventures. So if there's not an adventure length, if there's not an adventure style that meets your needs coming directly from Wizards of the Coast, you you don't need that. You can go, you can go lots of different directions and get a one hour adventure or, you know, a huge mega dungeon without Wizards of the Coast being the publisher for it.
1: And, Confrontation at Candlekeep is a great example of adventures that feel like the length and really are the length of those things you would have found in like dungeon magazine, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're shorter than a white plume mountain. Right. right.
0: Yep. Really short. And, and, and so that, that leads to the question, you know, how would how have adventures changed over time? Well, before we ask how let's ask, have they, <laughs> uh, and, and they have a bet, uh, right. The world has changed, just a wee bit from 1974 uh, when the game was first uh, released.
1: Back then, there were bell bottoms now that were yeah. like still bell bottoms.
0: Huge, wide lapels. Uh, yeah. I've got I've got pictures to prove that. But <laughs> uh, it's it's also important to note that really, like, the first published adventures didn't come out from Wizards of the Coast directly until, like, 1978, 1979. So there were four years in there where yeah. there might have been, like, Wizards did allow other people to publish some things. TSR really. Right. I'm sorry. TSR, not wizards. (laughs) It's Uh, been so long that uh, Wizards has been in
1: charge. And Folks who don't know, wizards has now been in charge of D and D longer than TSR ever was. Right. There you go. We're past that point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, and since the rules have changed just as much as the, the medium, the media that uh, the game is supported by that. uh, So of course things have, have changed but maybe not as much as we think. So how have they changed and why? Uh, as, as we've mentioned, the first, those first adventures were pretty short and bare-boned. Uh, there wasn't a lot of detail uh, given about the areas that the, the encounters took place for the most part. And there certainly wasn't a complex narrative. It was generally like, bad things are happening. Go get your experience points in gold while you, while you sort it out.
1: Yeah, I think a great example, which would never be done this way today, is uh, Barrier Peaks, which is the classic sort mm-hmm. of sci-fi mashup. Yep. Uh, you know, the kingdom of Sterich in the world of Greyhawk hires you to go check out, you know, that strange monsters are coming out of the hills. And that's the end of the plot related to mm-hmm. Sterich. You know, off you go. Yep. You've been given a quest. Off you go. And you enter this spaceship. The spaceship has a reason for why it's there, but probably only the DM will ever know it Mm -hmm. because it's hard to come up with any of the coherent picture of what happened to the spaceship. It it exists, it's there, but the players probably will never learn it. So it's all a very weird experience for them, very strange. Mm -hmm. Um, And and yeah, so you slay a bunch of stuff, you get some ray guns and grenades, and then you leave. And Mm -hmm. that was the story.
0: Right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, White Plume Mountain, somebody's stealing weapons from wealthy folks, and they hire you to go find them. Right? Tomb of Horrors, bad things are happening in this area, go, go figure it out.
1: And, and can we say about Tomb of Horrors that this is the kind of hilarity you had in old adventures? It starts by saying, and this lich could be in one of three places. Yes. And then they name where in the world they are. And only one of them is the actual place, but it doesn't detail the others. It just imagines that the DM will tell the players this and the players will go waste their time exploring possibly the wrong location of the world,
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) like a
1: whole nother continent. Yeah. And and, we're not continent, but an area of the continent. Right. uh, And and before they stumble upon the correct location, which is unbelievable.
0: Yeah. There wasn't even a, you start in a tavern. (laughs) There was none of that. It was just, you're you're hired to do it and here's the first room. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, go for it. Great. And and that's fine. There's there's nothing wrong with that. That fit the desires of most players back then. It fit the rule set. It it did what it was supposed to do. Uh and then came Dungeon Magazine. Right? And so then we didn't really get a lot of longer campaign length adventures in those early days i would say they would link some adventures together of course Mm -hmm. but they were published separately and maybe they would be published in a collection but that was generally even later you're talking 90s now for the most part for most of that Uh, to move i'm going
1: to say just to add here that the the way adventures were published and sold back then was quite erratic, even to the people that worked at TSR. Like they mm-hmm. would share how a thing would get pulled, a thing would get moved. Originally, it was going to be this level range, and it would end up. So you might even have a collection of, say, like the S1 series of ventures. Right. And one of them sort of wouldn't fit the mold of the rest, right. and the levels wouldn't line up. And, and so it was just, it was, and, and, and on the store level, right, we'd go to like our Walden books to buy these things, and there would be a rack of them you could, they were shrink wrapped. You knew almost nothing from what the cover in the back would say. If you're lucky, about 60% of the time, there would be a level range on it. And and so we would just pick one because it had a pretty cover.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It was the way we read fantasy novels back then too. And you would just pick one and go home and go, oh, okay. It's for eighth level characters. Everybody make eighth level characters. Right. <laughs> and off you'd go.
0: Yeah. So what Taos is talking about is they would put a code on these published TSR adventures. And So, maybe you you find S1, Tomb of Horrors, and you'd be like, okay, I'm going to play S1. And that's for levels 10 to 14. So, hey, we finished it. If you finish Tomb of Horrors without Grizzly Deaths, congratulations. Mm -hmm. And then you go and be, oh, S2 is out. Okay. Now that one was for levels 5 through 10. So you're like, wait a second. Characters just played 10 through 14. So now they're, you know, 13th level. So now this is for 5 through 10. And then the next S adventure is S3 Barrier Peaks, which is eight through 12. It's like, (laughs) so, you know, that's sort of in the range, but, but not quite, you know, and then uh, S4 was the lost uh, caverns of Sokan, which is six to 10. So that like even goes back (laughs) further. Uh, So it was, it was just sort of this, there wasn't any rhyme or reason to it. Uh, And, because and they don't
1: create a coherent campaign, right? They're not exactly. linked story-wise. Right. Some some were, but but a lot of them weren't. And so yeah. and you didn't know that from just looking in the store shelves. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. It's yeah. So what you would think of as a normal progression, oh, it's S1, S2, S3, S4, or it's like the I, the intermediate, which is you know Tomb of Lizard King and Pharaoh and Ravenloft and all of those. I stands for intermediate. It doesn't stand for a, a, a cohesive storyline throughout. So I1 is four to seven, I6 is five to seven, and there's all of these other adventures in between. Uh, so the first real campaign adventure that I can remember that came out, uh, published from TSR, was uh, Temple of Elemental Evil. Mm-hmm. And that was 1987. So that's, you know, 13 years after D&D begins that we finally get like a full length campaign adventure that's meant to be played over a series of levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that that's like the first, uh, what we would think of as a big published hardcover campaign. Um, but they also did publish
1: yeah. it all in one, which was a rarity back then to see that.
0: Yeah. And so, so there, the different things that TSR was putting out adventure types were mostly these, you know, soft cover module type things with, you know, from f- f- fifteen or sixteen to forty pages at most, very small. Yeah. Then you get this longer one, and then you get Dungeon Magazine, which gave you some shorter options. Um, yeah. So. There were still uh, different products, different types of adventures put out for different needs, but it wasn't as voluminous as we have today. Uh, You wanted to mention something about uh, what Gary Gygax actually (laughs) intended.
1: Yeah, I mean just it, I think it captures beautifully how adventures have changed and, and been reimagined in that originally Gary Gygax thought there is no reason for anybody to want to buy an adventure. So we're not gonna make any. And because no DM should need them. You just throw some stuff out there and have fun with it. And then another company started selling one when We Warriors published theirs. Yep. Gary says, wait a minute, okay, well I guess we need an adventure. And the first adventures, a lot of the first adventures that people found were almost like lists of stuff, mm-hmm. right? Including the the Palace of the Vampire Queen, and there was just a list of rooms with things, and 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 up to you to develop it. And there's there's even that B series adventure uh, where it's up to the DM to sort of put the things in rooms, right, and right, you know, it's like a make your own kit, and and there's no story or re- it's just just throw some things into rooms. Right. And right. that was the original concept. And and so it's taking a long time to get anywhere with that.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and it just goes to show how much our own internal uh, way of thinking and way of doing things colors, our understanding of the game, right? Yeah. Because, gygax and and all of the people that dm'd and uh, you know his group and and the splinter groups that went off from from him and and dave arneson they were so creative that they didn't even conceive of a world where someone might be a dm and not create their own thing right right? Right. there was no understanding of some poor schmo like me you know sitting in a basement in eastern new york not being great enough to, to do this. So there was just nothing given to us. And only after other people got involved. And so, you know, well, let's say it, you know, less creative in terms of being able to do their own thing would yeah. even understand the market for it. Right.
1: But even also when we look at, you know, accounts of how Gary Gygax would run a game or a lot of those early folks, they're completely different than what we see run today. Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it's what chris perkins or jeremy crawford are running at a show with a group like inc or what critical role is doing or just Mm -hmm. what we see on everyday live streams that that you know people are running it it is a different type of game today Mm -hmm. and it took a slow progression really in like the early 80s is when it starts to kind of you start to see these pieces really really build out um a lot of it is the work that uh Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman do mm-hmm. uh, with things like Rahasia, and then mm-hmm. people like to point to 1983's Ravenloft to sort of the real inflection point where mm-hmm. we say, "Well, the villain has motives, and yeah. the plot—you are given directives, and those can change, and and can be different every time you run it, and and you know that kind of interaction begins to create a deeper level of of interaction between the the DM, the material, the players—that mm-hmm. um, has changed over
0: time. Yeah we're talking to the experience points is actually part of the fun and the plot, uh, and the, the, uh, the conflict resolution of the adventure. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, so anything else that we want to talk about with sort of adventures, how they've changed over time, how to meet the needs of the various groups that, that are playing,
1: I think it's worth noticing, noting another aspect that, that we haven't named here, which is organized play adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, you, you, you jotted in a note here, but but that was something that also was transformative. The, and, and it was from the very early days that there would be these tournament experiences, mm-hmm. um, which then became adventures. So a lot of the classic adventures actually began as something that was run at a convention as a way to challenge people, which mm-hmm. also speaks to how different things were back then. That it was, right. you know, can you get through part of Against the Giants, part of the Drow series, and so on. And then it was written up and maybe a little more tacked on. But over time, those tournament experiences became more like one-shot adventures. Mm-hmm. And then they were linked to one-shot adventures, and they became grand campaigns like Living City and mm-hmm. Living Greyhawk and all of these big uh, campaigns. And some of them, like Mark of Heroes, Rebron, you know, really had interesting stories or what Living Arcanist did. So we see evolution because so many people are now involved in adventure crafting, and it's also happening in Dungeon Magazine at the same time, Um, Polyhedron. So all these different sources start meshing together with all these different ideas. And that's another source that you can go back to is, you know, old classic RPG adventures, yep. um, polyhedron, you know, all of this you can come to because, because those were also formative and influenced all this and continue to do so today, right? A lot of us, like you and I, have read so many different organized play adventures. Mm-hmm. When we write something that might be in an official book, we're drawing upon that and, and pulling those influences in.
0: Right. And it, it sort of links along with communication, right, in, in, in the real world. Because, you know, back in the day, you might not have even known if there was another group in your area and you really wished you could play, but there's no gaming store around uh, if you live in like a rural area. And so you couldn't just go post something on the bulletin board at the local game store. So you languished not being able to find a group. Whereas, you know, as technology changed, as the internet came to be, you could find groups more easily but that then that also asked for a way to take your character that oh you we can only meet once a month but i want to play more well now oh now i have the option but i really wish i could play that character here we come with a living campaign where you were more mobile gave giving you more options but it also forced adventures to become shorter because you couldn't Play, uh, you know, uh, seventy-two hour campaign all at once. Because you wanted to move over here and play this other thing later, so it made the need for short adventures there. But it also showed that the game could be played in shorter bursts, and you could still enjoy it.
1: Well, and this also comes to our listener questions, almost for, soul, for full circle, because. What has been happening on the um, uh, the monthly games um, on the uh, yawning portal that D&D right. and Baldwin Games are offering is they're now running wild beyond the witch light, mm-hmm. broken into pieces. Right. And one of the things when this idea came out, the DMs had to get together and think of, all right, how do we make this happen? Because it's so easy for this. This is a very open ended adventure. Mm-hmm. It would be so easy to to lose yourself and not finish on time. So what can we do? Uh, let's all group think of how we can break this into parts and really run these parts in the established time. Mm-hmm. Focusing, keeping people on track, you know, right. and, but still allowing it to feel like a fun experience. And and they did that work and it's been really successful. So you have people now who are signing up for the play online play of Wild Beyond the Witchlight and getting that whole huge published adventure done in just a few sessions. That's
0: amazing. Right. And so next time... We will talk about techniques for updating old adventures, uh, techniques for dividing larger <laughs> adventures into more uh, relatable chunks, and uh, yeah, we'll break down some of the old adventures that we played uh, over the years and really think are worthy of an update to 5th edition.
1: Yeah, maybe if uh, the listeners have a particular favorite, you could yeah. flip that our way and maybe we'll consider that one
0: absolutely uh anything else to add Teos? or are we safe to close this shop down let's do it all right thank you so much to our patrons and thank you to all our listeners out there uh if you like the show please consider please consider supporting us uh the patron patreon is at patreon.com slash mmp so, Teos, where can people find your brilliant work online?
1: Uh, if that exists, it would be found at alphastream.org. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Alphastream. And actually, I just to experiment, this last week, I opened up a shop on Kofi. So not mm-hmm. only can you support me monthly, but if you don't want to do that, you can just pick up the products and there that I recently released on DriveThru. And what's interesting is they let you keep 95% of the amount. So I don't oh. know that it'll get a lot of sales, but every sale there is is enormous compared to elsewhere. So uh, yes. so that's kind of cool.
0: What's the and link there to... on Kofi?
1: Uh, it's, uh, oh, let me pull it up. I have a tab. It is Kofi, which is ko-fi.com forward slash alpha stream.
0: Who would have thought?
1: Who would have thought? All
0: right. Um,
1: yeah, so try that out and see what you like. And I encourage other creators to try out creating a store there too. It's really easy.
0: Uh, well, until I do that, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. Uh, you can go to the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com to talk to us, or you can tweet at the podcast, which is at Mastering DnD. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. So, Teos, what should we do now?
1: It's Valentine's Day, Sean. We are going to hug and kiss all the monsters. Oh, uh, I will let the
0: Beholder know we're on our way. Mm. And the jubbering Malver. And the Remora's Bad touch.